0: would invite you to take your Bibles, or you could actually look in your bulletins. We have the passage for our sermon this morning printed for you in the bulletins. It's Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. It's just 15 verses. I'll read to you from Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Father, we pray that you would help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Help us to be as your people. Help us to be filled with hope and encouragement. We pray, Father, that you would reveal your truth to all of us today. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, who we ask to be at work even in our midst, even in this very moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had one of those experiences this past week of learning something new about something that I thought I already knew about. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I took an art history class. It was kind of a survey class uh, of art history throughout the ages. And at one point we were uh, learning about uh, the sculptor Rodin and one of his most famous sculptures, The Thinker. And it's one of the most famous sculptures in all of the world. It's a bronze sculpture of a naked man who is sitting and he has his his chin on his hand and he is in deep contemplation about something. It's often used as a symbol of philosophy, the, the study of knowledge. Now, for whatever reason, uh, we either weren't told or I don't remember The background of Rodin's sculpture, the reason why it was created in the first place. Uh, In 1880, Rodin was commissioned to create a a large art piece that would serve as a doorway entry to a new museum that was going to be built in Paris. And Rodin decided that he was going to use this this gateway to recreate a, a picture from Dante's The Inferno. It's a 13th century epic poem describing various aspects of hell. And so Rodin was going to use this this sculpture, this massive sculpture of of this entryway to depict all of the figures in Dante's poem, The Inferno. He was going to call the, the, the entryway the gates of hell. And the sculpture, the thinker, was in many ways the focal point of this great gateway that Rodin was going to create. It was this picture of this man at the top and at the center of the gateway looking down on this depiction of hell with his hand on his chin deeply contemplating something. There's a lot of speculation about who the thinker uh, is. Some believe that it's supposed to be Dante. Some believe that it was Rodin himself. But regardless of who it was supposed to be, it answered the question for many. What is the thinker thinking about? What is he contemplating about? What has him so deep in thought? And the answer is that he's thinking about hell. He's reflecting on the reality and the horror of the afterlife for those who are not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a worthwhile exercise for us to take some time to contemplate our own death, to contemplate what comes after this life. Some of you know the story of Jonathan Edwards and the fact that over the course of his life, he created various resolutions. These weren't just New Year's resolutions. These were resolutions uh, that he had for his entire life. There were 70 of them, and it was said that he would read through all of them once a week. The ninth resolution was this resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend Death. That's a worthwhile exercise for us to reflect not just on our life, but what happens at the end of our lives and what happens when we die. This current virus pandemic that we are experiencing has been bringing this to the forefront of many people. But it shouldn't take a pandemic for people to be aware that this life is so fragile And that it comes to an end sometimes very quickly. All people, Christians or not, should be thoughtful about death and what happens. The the spiritual reality of our lives of what happens after we die. And Revelation 20 brings this to our faces this morning. It helps us to reflect on this this morning. And what I want us to see is that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ then Revelation 20 is to be a great source of hope and encouragement and strength for you today. But I also want us to see that for those who are not in a relationship with Christ, for those who are outside of Christ, Revelation 20 serves as a final warning from the book of Revelation. Now, before we jump into those two things, uh, let me just talk a moment about the context of our passage today. Remember that the book of Revelation is a letter that was written, uh, written by God uh, to God's people. Uh, God's people who were struggling with being Christians in the first century. They were dealing with incredible suffering and persecution at the hand of the Roman Empire. And they were struggling <laughs> Where is God in the midst of all of this? Where is God? How is he present with us? How is he here to help us? Can we make it? Can we persevere? And God wrote them this letter to encourage them and to fill them with hope and to to call them to persevere in faith and obedience to the end. This letter was never intended to be hard to understand or confusing. It was meant to be read, to be understood, to be believed and to be a source of encouragement for God's people. But as we know, Christians throughout church history have often turned Revelation into this mysterious, unknowable, almost kind of mystic code book. Debates and arguments have permeated church history about all the details and nuances of the book of Revelation. And Revelation 20 is no exception. Throughout church history... Christians have been preoccupied with a debate about the millennium. Uh, Myriads of theories on the meaning of this 1,000 years that we read about in Revelation 20 have come up. One pastor friend of mine has said this that we, that's God's people, have eviscerated Revelation 20 of its power by focusing our attention on inane discussions of millennial minutiae. There is power in Revelation 24, God's people today. Power, not so that you will know all of the various millennial views and theology and be able to argue which one you think is right, but power because it is the Word of God, power because of the big picture truth that Revelation 20 communicates to us today. Now, having said that, I also want to satisfy some of your curiosity. And so I will tell you what I think is the most accurate understanding of this reference to the thousand years. It's not going to come to you as a surprise. Uh, We've seen throughout Revelation already, in the 19 chapters leading up to where we are today, that numbers are often symbolic. Rarely are they used in a literal sense in the book of Revelation. Revelation. And I believe that's the case, too, with this number 1,000 in Revelation 20. This is a big number. It's meant to signify. It's meant to convey a very long period of time from the time that Jesus lived on this earth and died and was resurrected from the grave until the time that he comes back for his second coming between his first advent and his second advent. That's the thousand years. Revelation 20 begins the seventh of seven cycles in this book. And this thousand years describes the entire period between the first advent and the second advent. So what I'm my position would be often referred to as the amillennial position. And I would be happy to talk with you more if you'd like to drill into the details of that and drill into the minutia. It's it's good to do that on occasion. But for today, what I want us to do is to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Today I want us to see the big picture of Revelation 20. The, the power for hope and encouragement for those who are in Christ. And the warning for those who are outside of Christ. So first of all, hope and encouragement for those who are in Christ. Why should Revelation 20 fill Christians, fill those who are in Christ with hope and and encouragement. There are three things that I want you to see. Three reasons for why Christians should be filled with hope and encouragement from Revelation 20. The first is this. It is because Christ is reigning now through his church. You can see that in verses 1 through 6. We're going to come back to these verses next week on Easter Sunday. We'll cover some things that we're not going to cover today, next week. But for today, what I want you to see is that John is getting this vision of a spiritual reality that is taking place right now. That Christ right now is powerfully reigning and has limited Satan's influence. That's what we read in the first three verses. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was over. We're getting this picture of the power of Christ that is at work reigning now on this earth from the time of Jesus' death. Until the time of his resurrection, until the time of his second coming, when, from, the, from the time of his death and resurrection until the time of his second coming, we are told that Satan has been bound. This is not a literal chain, a literal pit, but, but it's, being, it's, a, it's a picture that's being given to us to signify that King Jesus has bound and limited the ancient serpent. He has limited Satan's influence and power. Notice he's, he's bound by a chain. He still has some influence and power, but it's limited. He can still cause problems. He can still command demons. But he can't stop the kingdom of God from growing and expanding and being victorious. It's like what we saw back in chapter 12. The picture there of the church being uh, as as a woman and Christ as this child. And the child is the the serpent is ready to try to devour the child when he is born. But God protects the child and takes the child up to be with him in heaven. And so the serpent can't touch the child anymore. And so he goes after the woman. He goes after the church. But there we read that God protects the woman by putting her in the wilderness, protecting her from the evil one. And here we're seeing a picture of the same thing, although a little bit of a different description, a little bit of a different way of describing it. Here we're told that the evil one himself is being bound during this time between the advents. It, it reminds us of uh, one part of the Pilgrim's Progress story uh, that wonderful story of the life of a Christian moving toward the celestial city, moving toward heaven. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is moving his way to the Celestial City and he comes to this house. And we find out that the house's name is House Beautiful or or Palace Beautiful. It's a place where Christian could rest. It's, It's a place where Christian could be refreshed. And so as he begins to walk up the walkway to the house so that he might go in to get rest and refreshment, he notices as he comes closer and closer to the house that there are two lions perched on either side of the walkway. And he becomes fearful. And he begins to think maybe he should turn around and go the other way because it's too scary to have to walk toward these lions on the walkway. And just as he's starting to turn around and go the other way, the the owner of the house yells out to Christian and says, Do not fear. The lions are chained. The lions are bound. And as long as you stay on the path, they can't touch you. They can't hurt you. They're simply put there to test your faith. Christian listened to the owner of the house, and so he began to make his way slowly up the walkway. And eventually he came to the point where he was walking between the lions and he could feel the heat of the breath of the lions breathing on him. And he could feel the swoosh of the air as the claws came down, almost getting him. But they couldn't touch him. They were chained. They were bound. They could bring him no harm as long as he stayed on the walkway. That's what God's telling us here in these first three verses. He's telling his people then and he's telling his people now to be encouraged and full of hope. That as long as we stay on the path that God has provided for us, the evil one, the Satan himself, is bound. He is limited in his power and influence and he can't destroy the church. So be of good hope and encouragement. But notice, it's not just that Christ's power is at work here on earth. It's also Christ's power is at work even in heaven itself. We see that in verses four through six. I saw thrones and seated on them were were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they For a thousand years, John gets this picture not only of what's happening on earth as Satan is bound and the power of Christ is reigning through the church on earth, but he gets this picture of what's happening at the same time up in heaven. John sees Christians who have been martyred for their faith in Christ. We see that in verse four. He also sees Christians who have died during this time period. It's a reference when he says all of those who have not worshipped the beast, who don't have the number on their foreheads and hands. And as we talked about that before, it's not a literal number. It's talking about who owns you. Are you owned by the beast? Are you owned by Satan or are you owned by God? And he's saying all of those who have been owned by God, who have died during this thousand year time period, they are in heaven. And what are they doing? They are reigning with Christ. They are serving God in Christ. They are seated on thrones with authority to judge. Now, I will tell you, I do not know all that that means. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. But I know that what is happening here is that God is using Christians in heaven to serve and to reign with Him. Until he comes back. This wonderful, this beautiful picture is meant to encourage and inspire us. What is the worst thing that can happen to us here? Well, we could die, or perhaps even be killed for our faith in Christ. But even if the very worst were to come to pass, what happens then? We go to be the, with the Lord in spirit in heaven, and he gives us a role to play, reigning with Christ, giving us authority to judge. So be encouraged, Christian. Christ is reigning now through his church on earth and in heaven. There's a second reason why you should be filled with encouragement, not just because Christ is reigning now through his church, but also because of what we are told about the final and the complete and the certain defeat of Satan in the future. We see that in verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. We already saw that Satan, during this thousand-year time period, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, is bound. He's limited in his power and influence in affecting the church. But as we get closer and closer to the time that Jesus returns, his second coming, we're told that there will come a time in verse seven that Satan will be released from his prison and will come out. We're told at the end of verse three that it's going to be a short time and compared to this thousand year time. But what we are told is... Satan will be allowed to come out and he will be allowed to deceive the nations and to assemble this this worldwide force that would be in opposition to God. A lot of people question what the Gog and Magog are talking about. Uh, Lots of details there, but let's just suffice it to say for now that those are references to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39 of his book used the name Gog and Magog to describe the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil that would eventually come and try to fight and oppose the one true God. So what we're told here is that as we get closer to when Jesus returns, Satan is going to be allowed out of his prison and he will be allowed to assemble this great army a worldwide army, as 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 much as the the sand of the sea, in opposition to God. And we might wonder, why is God allowing this? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would he allow Satan out? Why would he allow Satan to assemble an army and to kill Christians? Well, as with so often other things as well, God doesn't always tell us everything about his will. We don't always get to see everything that he's doing. But here, I don't think it's too hard for us to understand why God would allow Satan to come out and to have this period of time, short as it is, of great opposition to God and raising up this great worldwide opposition to God. Why would he do it? It's so that as we come to verse 9 and 10, God would receive the greater glory. It gives us another picture of what happens as this army assembles. We read about it uh, last week in chapter 19, verses 11 and following. And here again is another picture of the same final battle that is going to take place. As Satan has marshaled this worldwide massive army in opposition to God, gathering around the saints and gathering around God's beloved city, what happens? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's almost, as we saw last week as well, it's almost anticlimactic because we have the entirety of this, this, this battle that is being talked about. It is seeming to get bigger and bigger and bigger in our minds. And then all of a sudden, here is the battle and then it's over. It's over quickly. It's over fast. So be encouraged. Be filled with hope. The end of Satan, the end of his darkness, the end of evil is certain and sure. Yes, at some point in the future, just before Jesus returns, Satan is going to be allowed to have greater influence and impact in this world. But no matter how bad it would get, his doom is sure. The end of evil, the end of the evil one. Is coming. There's a third reason why Christians should be filled with hope and encouragement from Revelation 20. First, because Christ is reigning now through His church. Second, because Satan will be defeated in the future. And third, because there is no fear of judgment forevermore. We read about this final judgment in verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence... Earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, d- the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again, we're going to come back to this portion of the passage next week on Easter Sunday. But I do want you to notice something today to be encouraged. John is giving us a picture of this ultimate final judgment that will come at the end of time. And I want want you to see the scene of judgment as it's being presented to us. Who is present here at the final scene of judgment? Verse 11 tells us uh, one who is there. And in the description in verse 11. One, a great white throne, and one was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. There's only one person that meets that criteria. There's only one person that that could describe, and that is the Lord God Almighty, the only one who can sit on the great white throne in heaven, the only one who would have sinful creation flee away from him. It is the one true Lord God Almighty. Other places in Scripture tell us that Jesus will also be involved in the final judgment. So we know that God is there. Jesus himself is there. And we also read that all those great and small are present. It's a reference to all people who have ever lived in the history of the world. So here you have present God himself and in front of him, in front of the throne is all of humanity who has ever lived. And then what happens as they stand before the throne? We're told that they are judged according to what was written in these books in verse 12. And so as we see this reference to these books It moves us from thinking about the the scene of the judgment to think about what's the criteria that is used in the judgment. God, the judge, on the throne, opens some books. And I want you to notice that it's plural. It's plural throughout verses 12 through 15. One book that is open contains everything that has been done. Everything that has been thought. Everything that has been said whether in public or in private, whether verbalized or simply in your heart and mind, a complete record of everything you have done and thought and said in the entirety of your life, and the book of that record is opened. How have you done in keeping God's laws? How have you done in loving God with all of your being? How have you done in loving your neighbor as yourself? It's, it's humbling. Perhaps it's even worrisome. And for some, maybe even a terrifying thought. But what I want you to see is that thankfully, that book, with the record of all of our deeds, is not the only criteria that is used in the judgment for we read in verse 12 and verse 15 that there's another book that is opened. It is the book of life. That's actually an abbreviated title. The full name of the book is actually given to us in chapter 13 and in chapter 21. In those chapters, the full title is used. This is the Lamb's book of life or the book of life of the Lamb. It's a book with the names of those that belong to the Lamb, that belong to Jesus. It's a book that had names written in it before the foundation of the world, before any deeds could be done. All will stand guilty before the throne of God in the final judgment when our thoughts and our words and our actions are revealed we will be found guilty but those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life are, are will be declared not guilty why because to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life means that you belong to Jesus. It means that He knows you as, your very, as His very own. It means that you are in Him from before the foundation of the world. All of your sins, all that is written in the book of your sinful thoughts and words and actions, all of it has been paid for by the Lamb going to the cross. And all of Jesus' good deeds have been credited to your account. And so when we stand before God's throne of judgment at the end of time, He declares us not guilty and righteous. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see, as a Christian, why Revelation 20 should fill you with hope and encouragement and strength? Do you see the power that is available through it that we might be faithful and believing people in this place. All, all of this talk about the devil. About Christians being killed. About suffering. About the lake of fire and judgment can be scary. And not just for the little ones. Now, I can appreciate how as we get deeper and deeper into Revelation. Particularly maybe some of our young people become fearful. The, the images seem to be so graphic. They seem to be the things of nightmares. But listen to what is true. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then there is nothing to be fearful of. If you are in Christ, if you love and you serve the Lord Jesus, then at the final judgment, you will be declared not guilty and righteous because of the Lamb. And as a result, you'll get the new heavens and the new earth that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. So, a couple things that I want... You need to be thinking about, Christian, as you reflect on Revelation 20. The first is that you can know for certain that the Lord is going to provide for you everything that you need. If God has worked out this incredible plan for the end of time, if He has revealed His plan to us, and He has, he has this massive, big plan of what He's going to accomplish, then we can know... For certain that he is going to provide for us and to keep us and to preserve us and to protect us and enable us to persevere because of our names being in the book of life. God is not a liar. At the end of time, we will be judged and we will be found not guilty because of Christ, because he has already ordained it to be so. Our names are in the book of life. The more that we believe this, and I don't mean just that we can say that it's true, but the more that we believe this in the deepest recesses of our hearts and our minds, the more that it will produce in us a true biblical contentment, no matter what our circumstances are. We've all seen those people, right? That no matter what their circumstances are, no matter how difficult they, the, the situation that they find themselves in, they trust the Lord, There's a sense of peace in the midst of those trials and circumstances. It's because they are learning and believing the truth that the Lord will always provide for them. Maybe not in ways that they want. Maybe not in ways that they particularly like. But in ways that they need. The Lord will always provide for his people. A second takeaway for you this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to reflect on the reality that because we're alive right now, because we're people that God has chosen to be here, alive in this place, in between this time of the Advent, during this 1,000 years when Satan is bound, how much of a privilege that is for us. How much of a blessing it is to be God's people living during the special time that we read about in verses 1-3. through Satan is limited in his power he is limited in his influence and his impact during this time and so now is the time when Christ is reigning in his church it is the time of the growth and the expansion of the Christian faith of God's true church and kingdom and he has given us this incredible privilege and blessing to be here now during this time and to have the opportunity of participating it should move us to pray. If we really believed that this is the time when Satan is bound and it's the time of the expansion of Christ's kingdom and church here on earth, the power of Christ reigning in heaven. If we believe that, how would it impact our prayers so that we would pray for Christ to be exalted here in this place and we would pray for people to come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If we believe this, how would it? How would it motivate us? How would it remove the fear of going out and sharing our faith in Christ with others? Of witnessing to the truth that we know because of God's word? And how would it also move us to love and to serve sacrificially our neighbors? If we believed that Satan's power is bound and now is the time for the expansion of the church and the kingdom, how would it help us and motivate us and strengthen us and empower us to go out and to truly love and serve our neighbors as ourselves? This is the reason why you should be encouraged, Christian. Christ is reigning now through His church. His power is at work on earth. His power is at work in heaven. We have the promise of the certain defeat of the evil one of Satan himself in the future. There is no fear if you are in God's care, if you're one of God's people. There is no fear of judgment forevermore. But I would be remiss if we didn't finish by at least mentioning that there's also a warning here for those who are outside of Christ. It's actually the last warning. We've seen a lot of warnings for unbelieving people throughout the book of Revelation. The description that we get in chapter 20 of what happens to those whose names are not in the book of life, verse 15, of being consigned with Satan and with the beasts and with the false prophet to the lake of fire, to hell itself. This is the final warning that Revelation gives for those who are not in Christ. The following chapters are this wonderful description of the new heavens and the new earth of what comes for us when Christ returns. But what we are going to read in the next chapters will not apply to you if you are outside of Christ. You will have to stand before the great judge and be judged on your actions of whether you loved Jesus, whether you followed His commands, whether you obeyed God's law perfectly. The true story is told about a young man named Adoniram Judson. Uh, Adoniram grew up in a strong Christian family. He, He learned about the gospel from his earliest days. When he was a teenager, he went to Providence College. And while he was there, he met a young man named Jacob Eames. Jacob was an unbelieving skeptic. But Adoniram and Jacob became good friends and began to spend lots of time together. And over time, Jacob began to influence Adoniram. Adoniram adopted Judson's, uh, uh, Jacob's skepticism. And on the 20th birthday of Adoniram, he told his parents that he had abandoned the Christian faith and that he was going to move to New York City to pursue a life of pleasure. Sometime later... On an evening in the year 1808, Adoniram was traveling at some point and needed to go someplace for the evening, and so he he pulled into an inn where he could spend the night. It was a small village inn. The rooms were small and they had paper-thin walls. And as Adoniram checked into his room, he could hear very clearly a great commotion that was going on in the room next to him. It was obvious, even though he didn't see what was happening, it was obvious that there was a man in that room who was in agony. A man who was in pain. A man who was sick and about to die. And Adoniram spent the entire evening listening to this man in terrible distress. He could hear the man being restless and struggling with the reality that he was about to die. And Adoniram wondered to himself, what would he say to the man if he could speak to him? What words of comfort would he try to give to him? And his mind went back to his friend Jacob and he thought, what would my clever friend Jacob say in this moment? How would he calm this man's fears in the throes of death? Adoniram didn't get much sleep that night. By the early morning, the man's moans and his struggles had subsided. Adoniram gathered together his things and he prepared to leave the inn and as he was getting ready to leave he ran into the innkeeper and so he asked the innkeeper about what was going on in the room next to him and the innkeeper told him that the man had died early that morning. Adoniram inquired about who the man was and so the innkeeper responded by saying he was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames. You can imagine Adoniram was stunned. His brilliant, confident, non-Christian friend had been facing death, had been facing the reality of the afterlife apart from a relationship with Christ. He was facing the reality of hell. And in that moment, he had no peace, he had no comfort, he had no relief. Adoniram was not immediately converted. But this brush with death... Put him on a path that eventually led him to have a confession of Christ, finding forgiveness for his sins, peace for his soul, and eventually he became a powerful missionary that was used by the Lord to spread the gospel to many in the country of Burma over a period of 40 years. If you're listening to Revelation 20 this morning and you are not in Christ, you are not a Christian, then know that just like Jacob Eames, there is no peace for your soul apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would ask, is your name written in the book of life? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Is your name written in His book? If not, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him. Ask Him to change your heart and to forgive you of your sins. Give your entire life to Him in love and service. And if you do, know that when you stand before the judgment throne of God, as we all will one day, You will stand there with Jesus as your advocate. And you will be spared a life of eternal torment in the lake of fire and sulfur. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is true. Even in the parts that sometimes are hard for us to comprehend, hard for us to understand, We thank you that your Holy Spirit's at work giving us an understanding to it. And so we pray for that to be the case here with Revelation 20. And I pray for your people, Father. I pray that as we read these words, that we would be filled with hope and encouragement, that we would have a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that is anchored and rooted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A peace that is anchored in the reality of our names being written in the book of life. And for those, Father, who are your people but have not made a profession of faith in Christ yet, I pray that today would be the day. Send your Holy Spirit and open their eyes, open their hearts, and help them to see the truth and to confess their faith in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.